0: listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. The title of the service today is Abba Father, but this is Trinity Sunday. It's the Sunday after Pentecost Sunday. It's actually not an ancient holiday of the church. So the church hasn't celebrated this since, you know, times long ago past. But at some point along the way, uh, leaders in the church thought, you know, I don't think we understand the Trinity very well. Maybe we should dedicate a Sunday to it. So this is that Sunday. And I don't anticipate that at the end of this service you're going to understand the Trinity better than you do now. But that's Okay. Because I don't think we're supposed to understand it. I think we're supposed to experience it. Like, what I hope to do today is offer a reflection on the Trinity. So, why title it Abba Father? So, as you all know, and I I say all the time, I'm a Pentecostal. You know, I grew up in the mountains of Virginia. And what people who aren't Pentecostal don't know about us is that they imagine, because we talk about the Spirit all the time, that we, we would have this focus on the Spirit in our theology, and our spirituality. But we're actually a people who focus on Jesus. Like, there's a whole segment of Pentecostalism that is not Trinitarian. They're Unitarian. It's a oneness church. And there, there's lots of different kind of apostolic expressions of it. There's one big group called the United Pentecostal Church when I was young, we called them the Jesus Only Church, which I think, I think that was actually kind of a dig, um, although they, they kind of embraced it. Uh, years ago, Angela and I were living in Tennessee, and on my way from where we lived to where I worked, there were two churches side-by-side side on this highway, and, and the first one was a UPC, a United Pentecostal Church, and the next one was a Kingdom Hall, a Jehovah's Witness, And so you had the Jehovah's Witness, they're Unitarian, right? They believe only in the Father, only the Father is God. And then you had this Unitarian Pentecostal church, they believe only in Jesus, right, that Jesus is God. And on the front, on the marquee of the Unitarian church, they put one time, Jesus is the man, right, exclamation point. And I thought to myself, what an ecumenical statement, right? So they could all say amen to that. Oh man, that was a lot funnier in my head. <laughs> okay, I'll just stick to my my normal my normal stuff. I mean, all, all of that was true. That none of that was was made up. But I, I thought it was gonna be a lot funnier than that. So, but here's here's my point. Like, if you listen to the old Pentecostals, they would say, there was there was a common testimony. They would say, I wanna, I want to thank God that Jesus saved me. Jesus sanctified me, Jesus filled me with the Spirit, Jesus healed me, and Jesus is coming back, right? So it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's a very Jesus-centered group. They were so Jesus-centered that some of them began to believe that Jesus is God, Father, Son, and Spirit, (laughs) right? That's a Jesus-centered group. So how is it that a Pentecostal group that all they want to talk about is the Spirit so they say, ends up being so centered on Jesus. And this is how. Because to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit of Christ. To follow the Spirit is to go towards Jesus. That is, the Spirit leads us to Jesus. The Spirit comes from the Father, as does Jesus. But the Spirit is this divine deferential uh, person, agent, So sometimes we would talk about being filled with the Spirit in such a way that it made us better. And we didn't think it just made us better than we would have been otherwise, which certainly it does. We thought it made us better than other Christians. Like we had the Spirit and somehow they didn't have the Spirit. And I've come to believe that if you think being filled with the spirit of God makes you better than somebody else it's not the spirit of God you're filled with because the spirit of God is not going to make you haughty the spirit of God's not going to make you proud if you're filled with the spirit of God you're going to be like Christ if you're filled with the spirit of God you're going to be humble if you're filled with the spirit of God you're going to be a servant not a master so today I want us to reflect on the Trinity and on the way in which the Father gives to the Son and the way in which the Son sends the Spirit and the way in which the Spirit points us to the Father and to the Son. So, we're going to reflect by using this old Russian icon by Andrei um, Rublev. So, this is This is perhaps the most famous kind of Christian icon kind of ever painted. So, Rublev was a a Russian artist. There's only two of his icons that we feel very confident um, that were produced by him. The, The original, no one looks quite this bright, but I wanted to make sure you could see it. So, this tells the story of uh, a passage in Genesis where it says these three people have come to visit Abraham and Abraham is showing them some hospitality. In fact, the story is sometimes referred to as the hospitality of Abraham. However, that story gets depicted in Christian art all the time, like we see a lot of it. But it's typically, it doesn't look quite like this. Like, generally, you see the elements of the narrative kind of filling the artwork, right? You see Abraham washing the feet of these folks. You see Sarah's work. You see the animals. You see, you know, all the parts of the story. But in Rublev's account, it's quite simple. And in Genesis, we find out in the next chapter that these three people turn out to be angels. But in Rublev's picture, it's long since been considered that these don't simply represent three angels but that they represent the trinity. I don't know if you can see from where you're sitting but in the middle of the table there's a chalice there's a cup or a bowl and in it is the head of a calf which is maybe a little grotesque i'm not sure but it's generally considered as or understood to be a symbol of sacrifice. That this, this represents the, the sacrifice that Christ would give for us. And the person on your far, the, the character on the far left is understood to kind of um, reflect or embody the Father. And the Father is not too close to the cup. It's hard to see, but it looks like the Father's blessing the cup. As to say, this, this is the way you'll have to go. And, and then the center character is Jesus who is himself in a, in a kind of deferential position, kind of bowing and bending and, and kind of accepting the cup, but not, not enthusiastically. Like, you can almost see in the, in, the, in the picture the feeling that Jesus has when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from me. And then on the far right, uh, the, the final character is the spirit, so I, I want to draw your attention to um, those three things that are behind each of these characters. So don't don't look quite at them, but look at, look in the background. So above above the Father, above the one on the left, is this house, which in the original story would have represented the house of Abraham, but in this kind of Christian allegorical reflection on on the on the painting on the icon. It, it represents the house of God. It represents us in a way. It represents that, that God is our God and that we are God's people and that we, we exist in God's presence. Above, above Jesus, above the center character, is this oak tree. It's the, it's the oak of Mamre. That's part of the actual storyline in Genesis. Mamre is a place, right? If I remember my Genesis story correctly. So, but the, but the oak of Mamre is understood not just simply historically as some tree, but is understood allegorically, spiritually, as the tree on which Jesus would die. And then above above the, the, the final character there, the spirit is this mountain. And the mountain in this type of artwork represents a journey of ascent, right? We go up the mountain, as, as, the, as Psalm 24 says, who can ascend the mountain of God except the one who has clean hands and a pure heart? I also want you to notice their clothing. Like, each one has on blue. Again, in this type of art, blue is a sign of divinity. They are all divine. Like, we could, we could separate everything in two categories, divine and not divine. Creator and created. And only God fits on the divine side. Nothing else. Nothing else. Everything else fits on the created side. And in the early church was quite clear about this. Even Jesus. They say Jesus was not created. Jesus was begotten of the Father. So that Jesus kind of resides there. With Jesus' uh, clothing, you can also see The the brown that he's wearing, which kind of represents the earth, his humanity, his incarnation, his presence with us, and then his little gold sash would kind of represent his royalty, his kingdom. And then with the spirit, and I love this, the spirit is dressed in blue and in green. Green is the color of life, the color of new life. You see, the spirit was there at creation hovering over the face of the water. The Spirit is there at our new creation. As Paul would say, we are new creatures, right? It's the Spirit that makes us. It's the Spirit that sustains us. It's the Spirit that renews us. It's the Spirit that makes us new. Some have said, have noted that the, the middle figure and the one on the right, the, the one for Jesus and the Spirit, that their heads are bowed slightly more than the other. Again, kind of showing this deference. I, I think it might be, it would be too much to say it's kind of subordination because they're all on the same level, right? They're all divine. But, but there is this, this idea of, of deference that, that to, the divine nature is to love. The divine nature is to prefer the other. So that the father has always been the father and the son has always been the son. And the spirit has always been the bond of love that is between them. There was never a time when the father wasn't the father and there's never a time when the son wasn't the son. There was never a time when the spirit wasn't the spirit. There's always been this kind of divine economy of relationship that God is love and love love is not simply love of self, right? Right? Love love has a subject, a subject to love. And so that's why we can say, and we said this in the last series, a more Christ-like God, that God is love. That is not an attribute of God. That is who God is. That is God's essence. We, We don't separate those things out. So what is, then, life in the spirit? Well, life in the spirit is basically just life in God. We are not apart from God It is a life of love And it is It is the regular life Like too much I think We focus on Kind of these extremes in our lives We focus on these valleys That we experience And maybe this last year Year and a half with COVID and everything We felt like the long deep valley Right Um, Yea though I walk through the valley Of the shadow of death Right Thou art with me. But then we also like to focus on these kind of high points when things go right. You know, mountaintop experiences. But most of life is not a mountaintop experience. But most of life is also not the deepest valley you've ever been in. Like, most of life is somewhere in between. And that's where I think it's important that we find God. That the life of the Spirit is the life of the everyday, the life of the mundane, of getting up and going to work and getting a bite to eat and making sure the bills are paid and, you know, having a friendship here or there and, and you know, just living life. That God is with us in all those times. And if we think that somehow God only exists in like our morning devotionals or if we think that God exists only kind of when we come to church on Sunday, we won't fully appreciate this life in the spirit. God is in the air we breathe. In fact, the word for spirit in Hebrew is the same word for breath and is sometimes used as wind or the very breath of life. Like no one lives without the spirit. No one. No thing. God is everywhere. In everything and in everyone. And because God is creator and nothing exists apart from God. So the Trinity is a mystery. It's not so much understood as it is perceived. It's not so much explained as it is experienced. It's not so much discovered as it is revealed. Augustine would say to his congregation... Don't be surprised that you don't understand it because if you understood it it would not be God. God is not some thing that you can just use to kind of leverage your life. This isn't a self-help program. We're talking about the creator of the universe. We're talking about the lover of our souls. We're talking about the one who knows us and loves us better than we know and love ourselves. This isn't some tool to just try and make your life better and work through something. That's why we come and we worship. We worship because God's worthy of our worship. The Westminster Confession says, what is the chief end of a human being? The chief end of a human being is to love, worship God and enjoy God forever. That is what we're made for. That is our life. And I think this is what Isaiah is experiencing in the story that we heard earlier. It was the year that the king had died, and he was a good king. That was a bad year for Isaiah and a bad year for the nation. They were going through tough times, and we all know, we don't have to use our imagination to know what going through tough times is. But when tough times came, Isaiah went to the temple. When tough times come, people come to church. In fact, people come to church more so in tough times than they do in like regular times. But this was a tough time. And he comes, he comes to the temple and he has a vision of God. And God is holy. And he's in the light. And Isaiah realize, realizes that he's not holy. But that's not a problem. It's not a problem for God. God just sends an angel who takes a coal from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips and it cleanses him. Sometimes we worry so much about things in our lives. We want things to turn out differently. We're, we're, we're frustrated with ourselves because we don't live the way we're supposed to. We don't do what we're, we're supposed to do and we do do what we're not supposed to do, right? That's why we have this kind of confession in the church, most merciful God Forgive us for uh, we have sinned against you and what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. So we are truly humbly, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. So for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, forgive us and cleanse us. Right? That's the common confession. But really, think of, think of who God is. God, God's not so much affected by sin. Right. God's, God's primary response to sin is to forgive it, right? God's primary response is to cleanse, is to restore. Like that's the God that we serve. God is on our side. Not, God's not on our side against somebody else, but, but God is for us, not against us. We just sing that. I am who you say I am. You are for me. You're not against me. I am who you say I am. And this is exactly what I think Isaiah is experiencing in that moment. And God says, I need someone to go for me. And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. And so that's my prayer for us too. That we would come and we would have a revelation of who God is. And we would realize the beauty of God and the holiness of God and the goodness of God. And the joy of God and the love of God so that we too then would respond like Isaiah and say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. So that we then could be agents of all those things that we receive back out into our world, to God's world, really. There's a gospel passage for today, too. We didn't take time to read it. It's very, very familiar to you, though. It's the story of Nicodemus when he comes to Jesus at night. So I thought we'd take some time and, and kind of reflect on another picture here. I'm, I'm your docent for today. You didn't know you are going to the museum, did you, right? And to have that little volunteer with a little red vest who walks around like they know stuff. No, just kidding. <laughs> they do. I, and I'm pretending like I do too, right? So this one's not particularly famous. I just kind of Googled it. But I do like it. So. It's, a, it's the account, of, as you know, of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And you can kind of see all the candles are lit there. And it, it's, it is kind of dark. And they're kind of leaning in like it's, you know, trying to make this a private conversation. One of my favorite parts of this piece, and I hope you can see it from where you're sitting, is you can kind of see into the next room, right? Somebody's pulling back the curtain and you can see some other folks kind of sitting in the distance. I imagine that's supposed to be Jesus' disciples, and I suspect the one who's, who's a little closer, pulling back the curtain, is John, right? John the Beloved. Like somehow, somehow he had to know about this story. I didn't know he was an eavesdropper, <laughs> right? <laughs> can, you, can you say that a little louder, Jesus? I'm trying to get this down. But this gospel passage, we, we know, right? I mean, I've often thought to myself that it's a little ambiguous with Nicodemus, like, He's not like the woman at the well in the next story in John's Gospel who very clearly makes a profession of faith publicly. Like we never get that from Nicodemus. But the church has always remembered Nicodemus well. He is the disciple of the night, right? He's the the one who followed Jesus, who kind of helped, but kind of secretly. But in this story, we're told that we must be born of water and spirit, which I think on one level would represent Um, literally our natural birth and our spiritual birth. Water, like uh, a a woman's water breaks before she gives birth to a child, like that water. And then the spirit that we have within us, that we are both physical and we are spiritual. We're not just physical bodies and we're not just spiritual souls. We are physical bodies with spiritual souls, right? Right? that all of that is kind of interwound together. But this is a, this is a hefty day for, for allegorical readings because I think something else is happening in this passage. Like I, I think the water that's represented there also kind of represents the water of baptism. And sometime coming up in the near future in July, we're going to have a baptism. So if you haven't been baptized and you want to be baptized, let us know because this is a Christian practice that we are baptized into the, into, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are baptized into Christ, right? As Christ goes down into the water, representing his death, and comes up out of the water, representing his life, we too go down into the water, representing our death, and we come up out of the water, representing our new life. A life that is in the Spirit. A life that follows God. A life that rejoices in these things. So all Christians, all Christians are born of the Spirit. And as I said earlier, we have to avoid this idea that somehow some Christians are, are, are better than other Christians. I mean, I know on, on an individual level I'm sure that's the case. But that, that has more to do with just kind of how we're living. It doesn't have to do with like our spiritual status. Right? Right? Mm-hmm. Thinking about myself lately. Y'all pray for me. Thank you. And this spirit, this same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that, that quickens our mortal body, this same spirit that hovers over the face of the water, this same spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost, this, this same spirit that gives life, gives life to us which is our epistle passage for today. It's what we read earlier, what Zach read for us. In Romans, we see that the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. It enables us to be siblings of Jesus so that we too cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Therefore, I need you to relax. I need you to just be with Jesus. Understanding that Jesus is with and for the world. We get worked up sometimes. We get stressed out. Like, am I doing this right? Or shouldn't it be better than this? Or if I was getting it right, shouldn't things like work out differently? Calm down, folks. You belong to God. It will work out. How many of you can faithfully believe that Jesus followed the will of the Father? Show of hands. Yes, very good. You realize Jesus went through some hard times. Yes? Yes, exactly. Thanks for laughing, Sonny. Right? It got tough, and not just tough because he was tortured to death on on a cross, but his friends, right, um, didn't understand him sometimes. Sometimes he's lonely. Sometimes he's hungry. Sometimes he's disappointed in folks, right? It's, it's not all smooth for Jesus. But Jesus lives that life, and if we are followers of Jesus, we should expect our life to be like his life. That is that, that, is that last line in, the, in that Romans passage, which we'll get to in a second, but it says we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. But I want to, I want to, we didn't read the whole John passage, but I do want to read this, this, the last couple of verses of the John passage. It's super familiar to you, I know, but I, I want you to hear it because particularly I want you to hear the end of it. So this is how that story of Nicodemus and Jesus comes to a close. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So if the Spirit can make us like Jesus, if the Spirit points to Jesus, if the Spirit shows us the way to be like Jesus, then to be with Jesus and to be like Jesus is to find ourselves in the world where the world is in pain. Is to be with those who suffer, to advocate for those who, who struggle, right? And, and that comes in all sorts of ways, right? All sorts of ways. We say this when we pray. We say, let us celebrate with those who celebrate, and let us mourn with those who mourn. That is, that is quintessentially a Christ-like act. And it's what the Spirit enables us to do. I don't, get, I don't get to these places very naturally. Right? Like following Jesus, I think, requires of us to kind of embrace a peacemaking and a sense of nonviolence. It's not because that comes natural to me. I actually think I got a relatively short temper. It's it's that's that's it's not natural. It's that I'm called to it. It's it's a it's a reality that Jesus lived and practiced. And what it's what I think we are called to. So as I said, Paul says here at the end of that passage Romans passage that that Zach read for us. We suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. So a life in the spirit is just that. A life in the spirit is a life that is like Christ. This this graphic that we use for this series, Life in the Spirit, I love it. The kind of the watercolors, it's kind of, it's a little messy, right? It's kind of gone over the edges. I love that. Like, I think that is life in the spirit. It's not always in the lines. It's all these different colors, and it's all of this stuff. It's good stuff and bad stuff, and it's a lot of in-between stuff. But it's, but it's life. And life is good. And I'm not just talking about the brand name of the electronics or whatever, appliances. Life really is good. So my takeaway for you today, what what I want you to kind of leave this service with is that to be filled with the Spirit is to be able to call God Father. To be filled with the Spirit is for you to have Jesus not just as your Lord and Savior, which we say all the time, and that's true, but it's to have Jesus as like your sibling, like we are heirs we are joint heirs with Christ that's what paul says so that we are we are adopted into the family father abraham no father god brother jesus sister spirit this this is our life and i know it can get tough and I know sometimes it's not tough. Sometimes it's easy. And I know sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's bad. But I really do. I want you to be able to rest in God. Short. We, this is not part of the passage today, but I, I do want to read it. Shortly after Paul said to the Romans what we read earlier about the Spirit giving us the Spirit of adoption, Paul says this. He says, "Likewise." The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose." That does not say that all things are good. It says that God works all things for the good. Some things are bad. (laughs) Some things are evil. Right? God will judge evil. But God will work all things for the good. And so our prayers, our prayers don't always have to be so articulate I want you to know that when you're working hard, when you're striving to please God, that a deep sigh can be a prayer of the spirit. When you suffer and you kind of in pain or agony groan, a deep groan can be a prayer in the spirit. When when you're sorrowful and you're mourned and you think it's never going to be all right and your tears are just falling, your tears are prayers in the spirit. And for those of you who speak in tongues, when you speak in tongues, your tongue speech is prayers in the spirit. And even, even when you're just aware of the presence of God, Amen.